Today we are in Acts chapter 19, and I ask you to turn there with me. We begin Paul's third missionary journey, and we're going to work through the whole chapter today. There's quite a bit that happens here, and what we see as we come to Ephesus is that by this point, Paul has developed a strategy to locate himself at central influential cities in various regions in the Roman Empire. He spends three years in Ephesus, and through his ministry, as we're gonna see in just a few minutes, all of Western Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey, many of the churches that are referred to in the book of Revelation were planted out of Paul's ministry as he centers in Ephesus. So we're gonna read just the first uh, 10 verses or so for now. Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so he told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask God to reveal his truth to us today. Father, thank you for this crowd. It's a blessing to have so many coming. Thank you for the newcomers that have come to visit. And I pray above everything, they will experience your presence in this place and our desire to hear from you. We recognize that the central reality of that is by hearing from your word. And so we ask that your word will do spiritual surgery in our lives. I pray that I would honor it, not abuse it, not manufacture ideas that will capture the real meaning of it, and through that, we'll leave here changed today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us through this study through the book of Acts, and by the way, this is the 24th week we've been at it, what's gonna happen in Ephesus will be pretty familiar to you because there is a pattern that begins to occur. The gospel coming first to the Jews. Some Jews come to faith, but then eventually the Jews reject the gospel, which will happen again here in Ephesus. Paul then goes to the Gentiles and shares the gospel, and we see people come to Christ. But then predictably and inevitably, as God is working, so is the enemy, and so there is a conflict, life and death kind of stuff. And then ultimately, you see the power and plan of God unthwarted. God has said, I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to use my church. You will be my witnesses. And so in spite of the best attempts of of evil men 
and of Satan himself, we see the power of God working miraculously to preserve and deliver and to save souls. That's the pattern, but in the case of Ephesus, when we come to the opposition, we are gonna see through this chapter three predominant roadblocks. You see them in your notes. The first is spiritual half-truth. Second is supernatural counterfeits. And then third is idolatry, the objects of our worship. These three things presented great challenges to the gospel, and they present challenges to us today because like each of these cities, we reflect much of the culture in Ephesus. Let me just fill you in on the city a little bit. Ephesus was a trade city, very affluent, powerful city. And within this melting pot, there was a great deal of witchcraft and occult practice. You see this overt presence of Satan we did not see in Athens and in Corinth. Consequently, God shows up on that level too, and we'll explore some of the miraculous things that happen in Ephesus that have not happened in other cities and the role that that plays. Also, Ephesus was the capital of the worship of Artemis, or Diana. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was among the most influential religions in all of the Roman world. The statue of Artemis was probably carved out of a meteor that had fallen from the sky, a divine female with many breasts. And the idea there is to speak about abundance, provision. You see, the worship of Artemis was the worship of affluence, the worship of abundance. It's interesting. You can trace through now the first three cities that Paul hits when the gospel comes to Europe, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, and see a very interesting um, picture of all the evils that challenge us. And let me take you to First John, throw that up there. Say this with me. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. In John's first epistle, he's dealing with the reality of sin in all of our lives, even in believers' lives, and the perpetual need for confession and grace and forgiveness. And he categorizes the evils that hold us as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now, I was thinking about the three cities. They really parallel this. Let me explain. Athens was the center of intellectualism. They worshiped knowledge in Athens. Corinth was the center of sensuality. They literally worshiped physical pleasure. Ephesus is the center of the worship of affluence. Think about this. Athens, intellectualism, that's the pride of life. Corinth, sensuality, that's lust of the flesh. Ephesus, the religion of prosperity, that's the lust of the eyes. It's an interesting thing to look at. And just as we've seen different challenges to the faith in Athens and Corinth, we're gonna see these three things that in a, in a place where affluence is worshiped, and is that not America, where these three issues can get in the way. But before we do that, let's just look at how the gospel comes to Ephesus. Paul comes, first he goes to the synagogue, and some believe but then eventually they become obstinate, and then he rents a lecture hall. 
And every afternoon from 11 to 4, for two years he teaches. Imagine that. Somebody should work out how many hours that is. Two years, every day, 11 to 4. Imagine sitting and listening every day to the Apostle Paul teach what he eventually wrote in the book of Romans and in Galatians and in Ephesus. It must have been incredibly powerful. God blessed it, and as a result of this teaching, it tells us that all, that's an amazing statement, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is about as successful a missionary effort as you see in the whole book of Acts. Because of the faithful work of the ministers of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the message of the gospel, literally a whole region hears the gospel. Could we do that here? Absolutely. We were committed to it enough, we could see to it that every single person in our region hears the gospel. That's what happens here, and as a result, many, many come to faith. Now, we are going to see the enemy at work, so now let me focus on these roadblocks to true faith. And the first one I mentioned that we're going to look at now is spiritual half-truth. There are two types of half-truth religion that have to be dealt with. The first one is is the one we've seen over and over again, and that's the self-righteousness of the Jews. We've talked about what this issue is. The problem for the Jews wasn't the idea that there was going to be a Messiah, but they had a certain idea of what the Messiah would be doing. And so as soon as Paul began to preach the cross, as we saw last week and as he writes, to the Corinthians, the gospel is to the Jew a scandal, a stumbling block. And the primary reason is that the Jewish idea of getting right with God is through my own righteousness. I earn God's approval by living a good life. What does the cross say? The cross says none of us pass the test. We need someone to pay that price so that we don't have to. The cross requires that we acknowledge that we can never be self-righteous enough. And for the Jew, that just was impossible. It became a stumbling block. They fell over that idea on their way to the cross and couldn't get past it. Now that exists today, doesn't it? Even many people that were raised Christians in the broadest sense say, well, there's a God in heaven. Someday he's going to judge us based on our merits based on our character. How often have you, those of you that have shared your faith with people, run into that idea? It's the same roadblock. It's the roadblock of self-righteousness. The second one is a little more interesting because it's the first and frankly the only time we see this particular manifestation of it. And that is the partial understanding of John's disciples. Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds some disciples He realizes that they have not come to Christ in the sense of understanding the gospel. They've never heard the gospel. When he's asking them, have have you received the Holy Spirit? What he's saying is, have you come to faith? Because we've learned through the book of Acts that everyone who expresses faith in Jesus Christ is born into the body through the Holy Spirit. So they said, we don't even know about that. So he says, well then, on what basis were you baptized? By the way, that expression tells us that baptism was a common thing, especially for Jewish people. We've taught on it, the ancient rite of mikvah. 
the cleansing of oneself ritually to leave their past behind and to move forward in a fresh way. That was a common practice in Jesus' day. Around the Temple Mountain were these mikvah tubs where people would ritualistically baptize themselves. Quite commonly, a young man who was about to attach himself to a rabbi would mikvah himself in the name of that rabbi. Jesus used that analogy. When he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, he was using the language of the rabbi. Take my yoke upon you was the rabbi's invitation to come under my authority. And Jesus said, but my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And his followers called him rabbi. And so then when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was raised again, proven to be not just a human rabbi, but the great rabbi of God, the great redeemer of the world, the Christ himself, he said, you go and make followers of me, and you mikvah them in my name. You mikvah them into the eternal life that comes by the grace given by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism is the fulfillment of all of these ancient traditions. So they say, well, we were baptized into John. Now, where did John disciples come from in Ephesus? Where did they come from? Well, we back up to just before chapter 19, where we hear of a young man named Apollos. Look with me quickly at verse 24 of chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila, who we learned in recent sermons, they came to faith under Paul, and they had been left in Ephesus to help bring the word and to help disciple and grow people. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Okay, so one very important tradition uh, starts right here, and that's inviting the preacher home for dinner. <laughs> very important tradition that should still be in practice today, by the way. But a more important tradition is seeing the work of God in someone and recognizing when it's close but not full. See, Apollos had been baptized into the baptism of John. That was a baptism of repentance. He expected the Messiah to come, and John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Apollos accepted that, and because he had been trained in Scripture, he was able to effectively argue why Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't understand what Jesus was as a Messiah. He had half the truth. He had the repentance side. What he was missing was the redemption side, the cross. And so Priscilla and Aquila bring him back and give him the full story. And presumably, like his followers, who Paul runs into in Ephesus, you see how that worked? Presumably, like his followers, Apollos is now baptized into Jesus. He goes off to Corinth, where now he becomes a powerful teacher, because now he has the full message. 
And that's true of these people as well. By the way, that's why this is the fourth scene where when they accept Christ as their Savior and they receive the Holy Spirit, there is speaking of tongues. Remember, I said there was a four-part coming of the Holy Spirit that begins in Pentecost. I won't reteach this. You can go back and listen to the sermons. Begins in Pentecost with the Jews, manifest by the gift of languages, preaching the gospel in multiple tongues. Then it goes to the Samaritans as a witness that the gospel was coming to them as well, the same manifestation. Then in the home of Cornelius, when the Gentiles come to Christ, we see that same manifestation again. So we see the fulfillment that the gospel has come to the Jew, to the Samaritan, and to the Gentile, evidenced by this gift of, of languages. This is the last place we see it show up in the book of Acts, this particular manifestation of languages. If we've already shown through this coming of the gift that the gospel is available to the Jew, the Samaritan, and the Gentile, what, what do the disciples of John represent? Let's call them the in-betweeners. <laughs> Those that have begun the journey, but somehow were left over in the coming of Christ, in the fulfillment of Christ. They had expressed faith as they knew how to. They had honored the teaching of John as best as they could understand it, but they were yet to experience the fullness of that. And so, in that sense, the coming of the Holy Spirit here validates a couple of things. One, John's teaching did point to Christ, and it was a stepping stone to the true gospel. But the second thing it underscores is that John's gospel was not enough. John's baptism was not adequate for them to be true believers because it was repentance without redemption. A lot of people look at Christianity that way. A lot of people think that Christianity is about getting my act together. It's another version of self-righteousness. But instead of focusing on doing good, it focuses on not doing bad anymore. A lot of people think that's how you become a Christian. You just put aside the old ways. I repent, but the problem is we need a basis for forgiveness. And that comes through the blood of Christ. That's what the Christian baptism is. It's an acknowledgement of this new life that comes by the redemptive work of Christ. Spiritual half-truths. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? For instance, wherever churches just preach the social aspect of the gospel, that says the cross and sin and all that stuff, that's too offensive, so we're just gonna live life like Jesus. That's the half-truth of self-righteousness. The whole message is we can only be righteous, first of all, by having our sins forgiven through the cross of Christ, and then being in right standing with God and having the power of the Holy Spirit. We can grow in sanctification and, and aspire to and live a life that's worthy of God. And so that same uh, roadblock is still with us today. Let me cover the second roadblock, spiritual counterfeits. Let's pick up at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, uh, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. 
One day, the evil spirit answered them, uh, Jesus I know, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What a scene this must have been. I mean, this is actually hilarious to think about. These men that see this incredible, extraordinary power through Paul, which included demons being exorcised from people, and they think just the name itself is what the magic is. A lot of people think that. A lot of Christians think, I just say in Jesus' name, and that, that's like the magic, I gotcha. It's about surrender to Jesus as Lord. It's his authority in my life that makes the name have authority as I invoke it and use it. And these were men who had nothing to do with the gospel. They just saw the name of Jesus as having power, and they tried to use it. It turned back on them. Interesting, you start with Paul, who it says has, at this season, extraordinary miracles. Now, the Greek language there is very careful. Luke wants us to understand that even for Paul, what's going on here was not ordinary. This is an extraordinary season of the manifestation of miracles. So again, you don't take doctrine out of storyline, right? We don't say because it happened here, that follows that that's exactly what has to happen for us. Basically what these were were the sweat cloths that he wore when he was tent making. It wasn't like this magic thing where Paul stood up and blessed this cloth and people took it and went out. These are literally his, his sweatbands. That's what the language is that he used when he worked. And people were being healed. That's, that's pretty amazing. And Luke wants to let us know that this has a particular purpose in this particular moment. They were extraordinary miracles, as opposed to your ordinary run of the day miracles. Let me just be very clear. I want and believe that God can do the miraculous anytime he wants, and I seek it and hunger for it and pray for it. We should be that as as supernatural people. But we recognize that this type of overt manifestation of miracle shows up in very specific contexts in the book of Acts. If you go through the 14 cities that Paul reaches on his missionary journeys, only four of them have miraculous manifestations. Athens, no miraculous demonic warfare, no no miracles. Corinth, same thing. But Ephesus, there is. And where there is this outward manifestation, Those are the cities where Satan is overtly working. It's an interesting thing to see. You know, you hear all these stories about the occult and and, uh, witches in third world countries, and I, I can tell you stories of my own experience with them. And we go, why doesn't Satan do that here, and why doesn't God do that here? Because in a secular culture, Satan's greatest weapon is to be invisible and unseen. People who don't believe in Satan are enslaved to him in a very powerful way. This is a secular culture, like Athens, like Corinth in that sense. Doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't do spiritual warfare. But here's an important thing. When it happens, it always happens in response to the attack of Satan. We never see Paul and the other disciples intentionally seek out spiritual warfare. They only respond when it comes. So I just want to point out two potential misunderstandings of this passage. One is this hyper-anti-demon theology 
that believes that everything's a demon, every sin's a demon, and our whole theology is based on rooting them out and seeking battle with them. You will not find that taught anywhere in Scripture, and you will not see a model for it in the book of Acts. That's not to say that Satan isn't at work. We need to be prepared to do battle, and we will have the victory. But we don't seek it. That's not the point here. And then the second thing are these faith healers who, like the Jewish exorcist said, well, we're going to do what Paul did, and they'll bless little cloths and make you send money and send it out to you and tell you stories about how people have been saved. The Bible says test every spirit if it's from God, and we need to be very wary of those who manipulate these ideas and prey on people's needs and longings and profit. They peddle the word of God for profit. Paul says, I never did that. And no man of God, no woman of God, really ever does. By their fruit, they'll be known. We have such supernatural counterfeits today, both outside the church and in the church. They were overpowered by the demon forces. Here's the result. Look with me quickly at verse um, 17. When this became known to the Jews, the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas about $10,000. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That's a really powerful story, but let's move on and just quickly cover the third roadblock. And the third roadblock is idolatry. We come into um, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in the related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who was worshipped through the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. This is a mob scene. Look at the next verse. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know what they were there for. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So picture this scene. By the way, this theater holds about 25,000 people. And it says the whole town was in an uproar because of what the guild of craftsmen who made silver idols to Artemis and made a very healthy living out of it because of what they had done to work up the crowd. It was one of those things that became a dangerous mob scene where, where a lot of people didn't even know what they were mad about. No wonder Paul shouldn't get in there. The Jews had no sense of that, and so they put forward one of their leaders who was going to now expound their problem with the followers of the way. So they think this is our chance to diminish uh, the Christians. Instead, when the Ephesians see who they are, because the Jews also don't believe in idol worship, they begin shouting and drown out the Jews. Great is Artemis, great is Artemis. This is about idols. Now, you could argue that it's more about money. The craftsmen are saying, we make a good living off of this. Oh, and by the way, the great Artemis is being threatened as well. By the way, because the cult of Artemis was about affluence, the temples were also banks. People had a lot of wealth invested and held in the various temples. So affluence and faith were intertwined. We have versions of that in Christianity, those that worship prosperity. But now here's my point. It doesn't matter if it was really about Artemis or if it was about the money, because both are idols. I love Keller's definition of an idol, and let me give that to you so you can write it down. He uses the phrase ultimate thing. Modern idols are any ultimate thing that holds our affection and interest more than God does. You see, at our heart, we are all idolaters. It's why the very first commandment is, have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Everything else flows from that. So every sin is ultimately a sin of idolatry because it puts whatever we're doing as more important than God himself. Even good things that become ultimate things become evils in our life. Your desire to raise your kids well can become an idol to you and you actually give in to the culture around you thinking that those things are important for them, but you don't expose them to their faith, don't grow them in their faith. So their success in life becomes your idol and an obstacle not only for you, but for them to end up being full people of faith. Our jobs, our careers, our hobbies, the work of the ministry, for pastors and leaders, can become idols when we value them, when what we receive from them, when our focus, when our need to have those things succeed holds us so strongly that in spite of our words, in reality, they are objects of worship. They are ultimate things. We are no different than these people, and our idols also become a roadblock for us. Very quickly, when you see how this ends, the town clerk gets up and quiets them down and basically makes a two-part argument. He says, look, we're the ones making the riot here. <laughs> we're the ones that could get in trouble with Rome who had a rule against illegal gatherings like this. So we're the ones that could get in trouble. And then he makes another really important point, and I want to read it with you, about the Christians. Verse 37. You have brought these men here, meaning the Christians, 
though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddesses. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting. And so through that, the assembly dissolves. It's interesting. The Christians never have to defend themselves. And there's this interesting observation about them. They're not causing trouble. They're not blaspheming against Artemis. What? How is that possible? Here's what I think. I think the Christians there fully understood that the only thing that changes culture is to make much of Christ. And when Christianity begins to think the way to change culture is to stand up and protest, to stand in front of temples and in front of political structures and use political clout to speak against the evils of society, we are actually turning our mission field into our ideological enemies. I think that's one of Satan's greatest victories in the church, that we think that we have more power through the political process than we have by simply speaking the cross. Like in Ephesus, the only thing that will change this culture is what you and I have in our hearts and we've spoken of boldly in this room and we need to speak boldly to this region and it's nothing other than the cross of Christ, the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the love of God and you can't be a voice for that and make ideological enemies of your mission field. That's why the journey will never have a petition to be signed. We will never put out there any person you should vote for. Because every time you do that, you send some people away that we're supposed to love into the kingdom of God. That's not to say you shouldn't have convictions and you shouldn't vote your conscience and vote your faith. But I'm saying that's not our job as the body. Our job is to raise Christ. It alone redeems and recreates. I have one opportunity when I speak to somebody and I don't want to win them over or make them enemies of my particular view on government or the shutdown. I want them, when they're done seeing me, to be caught with the person of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be your goal as well. Because they had done that, people didn't see them as their enemies. Think about that. They didn't even have to defend themselves. That's what Peter's getting at when he says, live such good lives before the pagans. Even though they first curse you, in the end they'll praise your Father in heaven. What is the remedy for our idols? Whether they're our homes, our boats, our kids, our spouses, our significant others, our careers, what is the solution? Is it to love them less? No, we shouldn't love our kids less. We shouldn't love our spouses, our our partners less. What's the key? The key is to love God most. To love Him more. And that's what Jesus meant when He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. It's up there. I know it's there. There it is. Was it there all all the time? Yeah, it it was there. The real cure to idolatry is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, 
mind, and strength. God is the only ultimate thing. We get that right. We get that right. Or we're idolaters. What is the ultimate thing in your life? Let's reach for God above those things. Amen? All right. Covered a lot of stuff. Let's pray together. We'll pick up the story of Ephesus next week. But let me just pray for you today and then send you out to fellowship. Father, thank you for how relevant what we're seeing that took place 2,000 years ago is to us today. We struggle with the God of intellectualism and the God of sensuality and the God of affluence. All of us are, by nature of our moral brokenness, idolaters. We have passions and longings that own us and get in the way of our love for you. Father, help us to love you most of all. Capture us. You know, and the only way we can do that is to see Christ on a cross. We love him because he first loved us and gave his life for us. Father, keep us focused on the cross. Help us to see redeeming love and out of response, love you back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Send us out with that passion for you. In Jesus' name, amen.